Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. With the first presidential debate nearly upon us, 20 Democratic candidates are about to present their policy platforms to a national audience. Drew Lippman moderates a conversation with David Reed, Johnson Zala, and Greta Joins, discussing how the campaign playbook has changed since the 2016 election and offering insight into how the first debate may unfold. Welcome to another Brownstein podcast. Today we're going to be talking about the race for the 2020 Democratic presidential nomination. I'm Drew Littman, and I'm joined by my colleagues, Greta Joins, Johnson Sala, and David Reed. Welcome all. We've got the first Democratic presidential debates coming up, and we've got a race that's already heated a year and a half out. So let's jump right in. Debates coming up. Who's going to have a breakout moment at the first Democratic debates? We've got the field split in two, so it's two nights in Miami at the end of June. Thoughts on that? John? Thanks, Drew. Thanks for the question. Glad to be here. Um, You know, I think what I would first say is, you know, for some candidates on stage, there's a little bit of risk management, Joe Biden being chief Mm -hmm. among them. Um, That being said, there clearly is an opportunity uh, for somebody to to break out. I think that's going to have to be the plan when you have debates divided over uh, two nights, 10 candidates uh, on each stage and each probably managing somewhere around eight minutes of time. They're going to have to use that time effectively and look to make marquee moments that are going to resonate in social media, in the media and, and traditional press the next day. Uh, I think Cory Booker is someone who we could see break out. I think he's under pulled from maybe where th- folks thought he would be uh, at the beginning of the campaign. And he obviously is is a force and presence uh, both physically and the way that he delivers. So I'm looking to see uh, what Senator Booker does uh, on debate night. Well, as you know, our moderator is a Cory Booker fan, so it's almost a conflict of interest. David, you look like you want to jump in. Sure. And I think that, you know, I agree with John on, you know, the fact that there there needs to be a good amount of risk management. But I think that for folks who have really been doing well in the polls as of late, you know, there there are a handful that I think will do well, especially in this format, that we have not seen and the American public have not seen yet in this type of a format. And I think Pete Buttigieg is one of those. I mm-hmm. think that he will handle himself well. Mm-hmm. And I think that he has been uh, fairly deft at uh, doing well in environments where he's only got a few minutes to speak, but being able to break things down. And then also there being uh, the ability to have a, a few sound bites that the campaign is then being able to use to push out to the followers. So I think we should probably watch him and see how well he does and coming away from that, what it is that he'll be able to use to uh, continue to motivate his followers. Mm-hmm. Greta, what about you? you? Foresee any breakouts for the uh, for the visiting team? I mean... I- I, I think it's going to be interesting. I'm, I'm particularly interested in the format if the physical presence of the um, participants is going to be that much of a factor. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I would have to say I, I think there's still a lot of millennials who aren't particularly enthused with anyone who's currently in office. So I think someone like an Andrew Yang could could potentially be interesting. I think he's pro- he's not really going to hold back much. And I, I think that could be kind of fun, um, Mm -hmm. fun to watch. I I do think that um, Cory Booker, I I mean, I'm going to be the contrarian here. I think he's probably, him and Kamala Harris, I think are probably going to go after each other quite a bit. I don't really think that's probably going to be helpful to either one of them. And I I do think Elizabeth Warren is going to pick up probably three to four points after the, the debate just, you know, 
we're all getting free ponies and unicorns and college and cars. And so I think that's a, that'll be pretty exciting for a lot of people. Speaking of which, Elizabeth Warren, earlier in her career, has been fairly vocal in her criticism of Joe Biden. Biden is a senator working on a bankruptcy bill and, and Biden when he was in the Obama administration. So, so there's a possible area of conflict. In the meantime, doesn't Joe Biden seem to be running as a front runner? Do we think he may even not deign to acknowledge the other Democrats and talk only about Trump, thereby staying out of the fray? John? I think the risk for Vice President Biden is that right now he's viewed by a large swath of the Democratic electorate, which I know Greta would say is entirely to the left. But you know, I think the majority of Democratic voters still view themselves uh, as somewhat in the middle or, or central voters. I think the risk for Vice President Biden is that he is viewed as the most electable candidate right now. Mm-hmm. And when you look at really any polling of you know, what Democratic voters care about, at the top of that list is beating Donald Trump, more than Medicare for all, more than climate change, more than uh, addressing gun violence and, and passing gun control legislation. So I think the risk is that with a uh, Pete Buttigieg, with a Cory Booker, with a uh, Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, whoever it is, if somebody on stage appears to be more electable, uh, I think that's a challenge he's he's going to have to face. Interesting. David, thoughts on that? Um, yeah, and I, I, I somewhat agree with that. But at the same time, I feel like for, for a number of these folks that are going to be on stage, whichever night it may be, uh, they're going to need to do something that differentiates them from the rest of the pack. And I think that you'll have a number of people going after Joe Biden, yes, because he is the perceived front runner. And I think he will probably look to just focus his attacks on the current president. Uh, but you know, I think that there, there's a lot to be seen you know, between now and the end of the month. Well, let me follow up on that, David. With a field this large, 20 Democrats going to be on stage, another four candidates look like they didn't make the cutoff. Is everyone actually running for president? Or are some of these candidates running for something else, or do they have a different goal from running for president? Surely they don't all think they're going to get elected. I mean, when clients ask us about the presidential campaign— the question for me that comes up the most is, does ex-candidate really think she has a chance of getting elected? What might some of these other candidates be running for? Well, I think that Yang obviously is looking to you know, make a point, but I'm not sure exactly what that is at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have a few others that may have gotten into the race thinking that they truly were the best candidate and that they, they had the best message and the best uh, potential to win. But you know, either through their efforts or through some of their flailing, you know, campaigns, it, it, it's not looking necessarily like they're they're you know moving forward in that direction. So yeah, and I, I think I would just add to you know to your question, Drew. Um, do most candidates out of the twenty think that they're going to win? I think the answer to that would be no. But do the majority of candidates think there is a pathway to winning? I think the answer is yes. Uh, and on top of that, I think to your question, you know, I think there are people. Uh, who come in, especially if you look at senators who aren't in cycle in the 2020 election, there's a little bit of that free run mentality Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. you can run, you can increase your profile, you can get on the debate stage. But I would also say as it relates to the Democratic debates, that is somewhat short-lived in nature. You can obviously qualify for debates one and two, but the criteria both on how much money you have to raise from individual donors as well as how you have to poll, that ratchets up in the third debate. So you might really only get on stage twice before the dials get turned up to the point where you're no longer going to appear. Well, let let me follow up on that, John. One of the things that we've seen is professionals, David, very involved in in fundraising, 
is that increasingly candidates and electeds raise their money online as opposed to from events and individuals writing checks and face-to-face encounters. Would you say also that, that if, you're, if you're a long-shot candidate, maybe you're not going to get elected president, but if you can double the size of your emailing list, for example, huge asset, right? No, I, I think that's absolutely a, a value and asset, both in the actual listen of itself and being able to use that either for future political campaigns or if you move outside of the political spectrum to be able to provide that to others uh, in the party. So yes, I would say there's certainly a value there. So imagine for a Tulsi Gabbard, for example, a House member, uh, still fairly junior, suddenly an opportunity to get a national audience. I mean, she's bound to And she has out. qualified too, so she, she has will qualified. be on the debate stage. She's interested in certain specific issues that other candidates may not even want to talk about. So even if the audience for her isn't you know, 65 million people, you'd need to win a presidential. If it's a million, that's a huge step up, right? Greta, do you know of any instances um, where presidential candidates appeared to be after some goal short of getting elected to the White House? I mean, sure. I think I think there are a number of cable news networks who like to hire people mm-hmm. who've been on debate stages and, and can speak to intelligently from their past about, you know, what running in a, in a campaign is like and, you know, what the candidates are thinking. And, um, you know, I, I think raising your profile is always good for book deals and speaking yep. deals. Yep. And so I, I think when the opportunity presents itself to um, go out and talk to a bunch of, you know, the progressive base of your party about things that they're going to like, I think that's probably going to help a number of candidates and whatever they choose to do uh, down the road. And a number of these candidates are, are fairly young. So, right. I mean, they have a long future in front of them potentially. And so so branding might be a term that we'd apply to, to this exercise for some of these candidates. Sure. And I would go so far as to say that, you know, I think it's a win-win for anybody currently in the race. You know, there's very little to lose, especially for those young folks that are running, younger folks that are running. Um, as Greta said, there are opportunities in media. There are other opportunities to continue you know, the fight, quote unquote, if they've mm-hmm. got a message that they're really trying to push mm-hmm. out there. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, future uh, political ambition. Um, yep. This could be a stepping stone, whereas 25, 30 years ago, you wouldn't necessarily have seen this as a platform for you know, stepping up. Rather, this is, an arri- you know, this is where you arrive to. Um, I think that the uh, the paradigm has changed. Well, 25, 30 years ago, it would have been too hard to raise the startup money. Essentially, That's right. you would have had to raise it the artisanally, as they higher. say now. You'd have to you'd have to go from one person to another. You'd raise all that money by individual phone calls, which would nearly be impossible. Sure. But but I worked for um, Barbara Boxer when she was in the House and ran for Senate. So how difficult it is. She ran successfully for Senate, but how difficult it is if you're one of one member of the huge California House delegation for anyone outside your district to even know who you are. And I think California now has 46 Democrats in the House. So if you're one of those Democrats and want to run for governor someday or or run for an open Senate seat someday, um, Eric Swalwell, for example, fairly young guy, I certainly can see. Running for president, raise that money online, gets you up on the debate stage with uh, Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or Joe Biden. 
I mean, you've been on MSNBC, maybe a million people see you, but you could have 35 million people watching this sure. debate. And I mean, you know, I just want to dive in a little bit to um, this conversation that we've had on the fundraising and the money race. Yes, online money and uh, digital marketing campaigns to raise that money is extremely important. However, we have seen over the course of the last several months that a number of folks who had relied exclusively on these digital campaigns and through direct marketing and through the mail campaigns um, to transition to incorporating some of your more traditional higher dollar fundraising mm-hmm. tactics. Uh, we saw that uh, that Bernie Sanders actually has gone to hiring somebody doing a more traditional approach via events. Um, we've seen Elizabeth Warren do the same thing. She ended up pushing out the finance director who was overseeing that operation, and we saw the numbers dip. Mm, um, so, I mean, you do have – I feel like it does need to be an all-of-the-above approach if you're going to be successful, uh, unless, of course, you're like um, some of these uh, some of these candidates that really do catch fire and are able to rely on that, but most are actually going to have to, you know, look to all sources and all ways to keep the you know keep their coffers full. Mm-hmm. And I would add that there's you know the the criteria for qualifying uh, is not without criticism. There are some people who have said that it creates a perverse incentive whereby candidates are devoting a lot of their uh, time and resources to raising money uh, via social media, ads on Facebook, because they're trying to get as many $1 donors into their campaign as possible so that they can qualify for the debate. Which is extremely expensive to do. Which is expensive to do. I, I saw one article that said as much as you know $40 for an ad to get you a, a unique $1 uh, donor, but they're doing it in order to qualify. And some have argued at the expense of hiring staff that can put out policy positions or staff mm-hmm. on, on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not to say that it isn't without criticism. Mm. Uh, Greta, from the Republican side, did that very large field of candidates in 2016 getting up to debate, did it, did it help or hurt the Republicans? We know, we know it resulted in the selection of, of Donald Trump, who was the winner of the presidential election, but in terms of appealing to a broad audience, or was it neutral? Um, you know, I I don't know if you can really compare the two. One, because Donald Trump's presence on the stage was just so different than mm-hmm. every other candidate. Mm-hmm. You don't have someone like that on the Democratic side this time, I don't think. You don't have someone who, you know, had a reality show for years and, you know, a million plus Twitter followers already. And it's just I, I, I think it's kind of different. To be honest, I think it's um, – if if you see kind of the evolution of of the party, it's been interesting of the sense that I think it's really helped Republicans identify what voters care about. And it wasn't a mm. lot of what the Paul Ryans and some of the more traditional Republicans were talking about and had been for years. And so I I think that in of itself is is helpful. But I think a lot of it will be um, you know how the moderators pose questions and mm-hmm. and what they're asked. Um, I, I think that the questions in these debates are probably going to be largely softballs. So I and I think that in the Republican debates, if you watch, there was a lot of trying to um, show Republican voters that Donald Trump didn't understand very specific policy questions. Uh-huh. And the fact was the voters didn't care. So, I, you know, Good I points. think I think the questions this time are going to be around, like, why is Donald Trump bad? Please, you know, start from left to right. And, you know, what's the best quality of Elizabeth Warren's dog? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's going to be stuff that it's and it's, there's so many people on each stage. It's going to be hard to answer those questions in any sort of substantive way where people are going to trip up and falter. 
You know, I think is what's going to be problematic is trying to master the short response that's also impactful. Mm-hmm. One thing I would just add to that, Drew, you know, I think one positive thing about having two debates and the way that they're dividing, you know, what I'll say are the leading candidates uh, between the two debates is viewers really will get to see a cross-section of America. Mm -hmm. You're going to see younger Americans as well as uh, more tenured Americans, I'll say. You're going to see folks of different races and religions, uh, men, women. You're also going to see a cross-section of the country. You're going to see folks from the East Coast and, and West Coast as well as candidates from Middle America. So in a world where the Democratic Party is and needs to be a Big Ten party, uh, I do think that's positive. And to Greta's point, I don't know if it was the Donald Trump effect or the fact that you were having uh, 10 candidates uh, on stage. But when the Republicans held their first uh, debate in August of 2015 on Fox News, there were 24 million viewers. And you know, don't quote me on this, but that is the most watched live broadcast of a non-sporting event in cable television history. Wow. So I think bringing more more viewers to uh, that form and allowing them to hear their candidates has to be a positive in some sense. Sure. That makes sense. We'll get back to debates before we finish, but I want to talk a little bit about the race uh, going forward beyond the debates. Look ahead, if we can, a little bit to next year. First of all, we, we've seen polling lately that's very encouraging for Democrats. A new poll from a very credible firm out uh, just recently shows six different Democrats beating President Trump by margins just beyond the margin of error. I think the the candidates Trump came closest to were, were Buttigieg and Booker, and he still lost by five to each of them. But is it really a national race or is it a state by state race? Are campaigns that interested in national polling, it captures the public attention when these polls are published? Or do they really just care about Iowa and New Hampshire and not much more than that because you have to get through those first? David, some thoughts? Sure. I think that national polls are great things to talk about and great things for folks on cable to um, tout, especially those in in the more left-leaning networks to say, yes, there is a chance we need to continue in this direction. We need to continue to, you know, push in the direction of elevating these nominees. Um, but it really is a state-by-state race at this point, mm-hmm. um, and it will be until those races have been decided. Um, so we do need to look at where they stand uh, in those early states, and that's what's that's obviously what's going to de- determine who it is that um, moves forward and eventually clinches the nomination. And right now, I think that you know it's way too early to tell to make those kinds of predictions. But um, what is uh, predictive is what exactly the campaigns are doing to ensure that they're shoring up the support that is necessary. So looking at, you know, where Kamala Harris and Booker are shoring up their support in South Carolina, uh, what Buttigieg is doing to uh, broaden his support amongst minority voters, and if he's actually taking cues from the things that have come from polling and also just come from anecdotal uh, experiences that the campaigns and those around them have had. Um, I think that's what we should be focusing on. Mm-hmm. It's it's not as fun and it's yeah. not as horse racy and it's not going to get as much coverage, but I think that's going to uh, be more predictive. And, and in a way, that's an, that's an old-fashioned view sure. of the beginning of the primary caucuses, which is that it's retail, it's on the ground, national audience, the most important stuff is just not 
visible to national audience. Correct. And the momentum that you get from all that, you know, all these national polls can be obliterated if you lose all that momentum in those first few races. Yeah. And if you're not seen as viable after that, you're done. Well, I, I think David's absolutely right. And, you know, as a, on the proof point of it being too early, remember, Donald Trump didn't even announce he was running for president until June 16, 2015. A magical moment when he was coming <laughs> down that golden escalator. And I think beyond that, something I think we've discussed in a, a previous podcast is you know, you cannot understate the importance of Iowa. And I know right. Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada are all important. And then California moving up is an important consideration. Yep. But the last Democratic candidate to win Iowa and not win the Democratic nomination was Tom Harkin. Obviously, Clinton overcame him to win the nomination. He's a senator from Iowa. From from Iowa, home state senator. Favorite but son. I think that's incredibly important to the, you know, on state by state, I think you have to you're playing the state-by-state game for the race that's in front of you right now, which is the Democratic primary. And then even looking out to the general election, again, national polling matters to some extent, but it's really state-by-state. State. This this election will be won and lost on Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, the general Florida, election. the general yeah. election. Correct. It's really a handful of states that will determine, I think, both the outcome of the primary as well as the outcome of the general. So let's build on that point, uh, John. I'll put the question to you directly. Bernie Sanders uh, running against Hillary Clinton won New Hampshire overwhelmingly. That's the first, Iowa's the first caucus. Then a week later, the, New Hampshire is the first primary. Sanders got over 60% of the vote in New Hampshire. He comes from the neighboring state of Vermont. If he loses the New Hampshire primary, that's a big step backwards. Is he done if he loses? Does he have to win in New Hampshire to be a viable candidate? I think if Bernie Sanders, Senator Bernie Sanders, loses in Iowa and then loses in New Hampshire to follow, yes, especially given that he's from Vermont, that he's won in that state previously, I think that is a huge step backward and probably creates a little bit of a vacuum uh, depending on who won in those two states. Mm -hmm. But you're already seeing that Senator Warren, or at least there's some indication that Senator Warren is taking ground from Senator Sanders. I think Greta said after the debate you might see her take another three or four points. Yeah. But as you head into heavy, heavily unionized states like in Nevada, you know, I think you could start to whittle down the field. Maybe Bernie goes away. You have Warren uh, rising or something to that fashion. Well, that, that's very helpful analysis. And I would just add, Warren is also from a neighboring state of New Hampshire. She's yes. from Massachusetts. Um, I went back and took a look, and it looks like if there's a credible New England candidate, that candidate always wins the New Hampshire primary. Uh, some like Mike Dukakis and John Kerry actually did win the nomination, but you also had Paul Songus winning um, in New Hampshire, Massachusetts senator. The last time there was a credible candidate for Massachusetts and Vermont was 2004, Senator John Kerry from Massachusetts, Governor Howard Dean from Vermont, and they finished one and two. So my sense of it is if Sanders loses New Hampshire, that's such a big step back that he's not a viable candidate after that. Greta, will you, will you shed a tear uh, when Bernie drops out, you want I'm him to pulling be the for Bernie. Man. I know you are. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I, I think the problem that one, I, I think there's two issues at play here. One, there are too many candidates to effectively, I think, make Iowa and New Hampshire the kingmakers in mm -hmm. this debate. Interesting. If you airdrop all of these candidates into New Hampshire, you are covering like two thirds of the state in just candidates and staff. Like yep. the, it's. 
it's, it's going to be too crazy. There's going to be voter fatigue. So some of these people aren't even going to compete in New Hampshire. They're just going to go to South Carolina. They're going to go to Nevada. They're going to go to places where they feel that they have stronger chances of winning, and then they're going to give up. So I guess that, one, I think, in my opinion, diminishes the value of a New Hampshire primary win. Two, I, you know, I think, you know, there's been a lot of focus on Biden and he's a retail politician. But, you know, the thing is, Trump isn't a retail politician and he beat a retail politician or someone who was trying to emulate a retail politician in, in the last campaign. And it, it just it didn't work. So I guess the question is. Are you going to beat Trump by beating being the opposite of Trump and trying to revert back to you know previous campaign norms, or are you going to nominate someone who's going to do something different and exciting and that energizes voters? I I don't I don't know how that's going to turn out, mm-hmm. but you know Donald Trump wasn't running around New Hampshire and shaking hands with people, right? right? So and he wasn't doing that. Like I think he had I think. 10 offices in Florida and Hillary had like 200 something. I mean, it's I I just think that the playbook is different. And a lot of these candidates and campaign consultants are selling, you know, we're like, we're just going to get you on the ground. You're going to go out and talk to voters and they're going to support you. And I just don't I don't think that equation with as many people who are going online and getting content from all of these people, you know, without having to leave their homes are necessarily going to be going for the guy that comes to their front door. Hmm, interesting. Well, let's talk just a little bit more specifically about the the early primary process. You've got in February of 2020, Iowa, New Hampshire the next week, then Nevada, uh, then South Carolina. You've got those four big events where you're pulling out different constituencies, arguably, and then you have Super Tuesday at the very beginning of March. What's changed there, I think, John, you alluded to this, is that California has moved its primary from June, where it was pretty much irrelevant, to Super Tuesday, which used to be sort of a geographically compact, super southern primary day, where it was easier for candidates that might be running low on funds to keep running because you didn't have to travel quite as far. Now you've got all those southern states plus California and, incidentally, Minnesota and Massachusetts, which makes it kind of hard to choose. But looking at some candidates who are not among the front runners now, on Super Tuesday, you have California, which is Kamala Harris's home state, Colorado, John Hickenlooper and Michael Bennett's home state, Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren's home state, Minnesota, Amy Klobuchar's home state, Texas, that's Beto O'Rourke and Julian Castro, and Vermont, which is Bernie Sanders' home state. Does that cluster of primaries on Super Tuesday give a lot of these candidates a reason to stay in? to try and get a favorite sun effect like like John mentioned with uh, Harkin. What do you think, John? Yeah, I think it gives them a reason uh, to stay in, but I also look at it uh, kind of from a, another angle. So it certainly gives them a reason to stay in until after Super Tuesday. At the same time, you know, you could have had a situation where a uh, uh, Kamala Harris or an Eric Swalwell or otherwise stay in maybe longer than they should, supposing they haven't made gains in early states or, or made gains in the polling. So I think after... Super Tuesday, depending on where the numbers lie, you will see a very steep drop off in terms of what other candidates remain in the race. Maybe not so uh, different than what we saw in the Republican uh, primary, where there was a pretty steep drop off and and we had Ted Cruz kind of hanging on by his shoestrings. Um, But I think after Super Tuesday, 
we'll have a pretty good sense of how the primary is going to net out. So Super Tuesday is bound to be the last hurrah for a whole bunch of candidates. We can't say with certainty which ones, but but that's their last chance to put points on the board, uh, basically. Okay, lightning round. You're playing a drinking game on debate night. What's the word or phrase that's going to cause everybody to have to raise a glass in your household? Greta? Collusion. <laughs> that's hard to top. John? Yeah, I was going to say Russia, so I think we're on the same page. And I'm going to be an optimist and think they're going to try to focus on some of the, uh, some of the kitchen sink issues, so I'm going to say healthcare. I was going to say Medicare for all, but I think I'm, I'm clearly in the minority here. But if we go from drinking game to what's on your bingo board, and we could all be accommodated. And we know that the Democrats are trying to accommodate everyone in these processes. Well, thank you all for this very informative discussion. Looking forward to those debates. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein Hyatt Farbershreck podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.